Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast. I am your co-host, Dr. Kevin Pekka. Today, we have such a phenomenal guest. Uh, He has been in practice for 26 years now. He has trained so many Blair Upper Cervical doctors. Um, it's, uh, It's an honor to have him on the show today. Please welcome Dr. Todd Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard, how are you today? I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm doing phenomenal. Um, it's 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 so great to have you on the show, and I'm I'm very interested to get your story. I'm always interested to see how people get into Blair because not a lot of people know about it, and uh, I'm always fascinated with uh, how did you find Blair Upper Cervical? Oh man, how much time do we have? We have as I, I I don't I have no time limit here. You can go on for as long as you'd like. Okay, well I'll just start at the beginning. Um, so my life story is basically when I was born, I was one of a twin mm. figured one of us kicked. Um, I was, it was coming out and, uh, went, came out so fast that the doctor dropped me. Wow. And, yeah. So that was my first subluxation that I know of. <laughs> I stopped breathing and you stopped breathing. Yeah. And so they got me breathing again, you know, spoiler alert there, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and so from then on, the, the, as the story goes, that uh, my mom brought me home, and my brother hit me in the head with a hammer, saying, "Take him back. <laughs> we don't want him." Wow. Uh, so that was another trauma. Oh my and um, you know, having four brothers growing up, there was a lot of activity mm-hmm. and a lot of that. But I grew up as that kid who was um, sick. I had migraines. Uh, what I recently well found out when I wrote that cyclic vomiting paper is that I had cyclic vomiting mm. and the migraine, the throwing up, um, uh, you know, two or three days at a time of nothing but pain. Light would hurt my eyes. Um, hard to get comfortable at any time. And they usually came on when my family was doing something important. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. Um, always sick. Uh, it seemed like if anybody got a cold, that was worse with me stuff, uh, tubes in the ears, uh, growing up, uh, multiple other traumas with sports and bikes and, and things like that. But uh, then it came time where I basically um, didn't realize what was happening, but it would hurt me to concentrate, to read, and to really focus. So I just didn't and tried to get by without doing that kind of stuff. Wow. Plus the fact if I, I would read things and then wouldn't remember it, uh, what I read, it was always that was difficult. I could um, hear things, listen. If I heard a story, I could remember it. But um, anything that I had to do myself was very difficult to get that information and retain it. Um, Just getting by, uh, trying to do the best I could. Uh, I'm in uh, junior, junior in high school. I get into a football injury and I can't move my neck. And my mother had just started seeing Dr. Scott Matz, who I now work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was dealing with migraines and, and he said he could help her. And my dad said, you got nothing to lose. I'm trying to raise four boys and 
and all that. So she got adjusted, her migraine went away. And mm -hmm. basically just like that. So when I got hurt, she said, well, you're going to go to the chiropractor. And I had no idea what a chiropractor was at this time, but you know, I went and that's when I met Scott and he adjusted my neck, uh, basic kind of Palmer package stuff that was going on at that point. Um, he had a toggle table in the corner and I remember asking him on one of the visits, what is that? Mm -hmm. And he showed me and, and gave me a toggle and, and it, I really didn't seem like much at the time I was a high school kid, just, you know, trying to play sports and, and get by and Afterwards, looking back, I began to realize that it was really the footballs in the fall, right? So mm -hmm. the spring of my junior year, that school was easier mm -hmm. for me. I was I didn't get D's, you know, mm -hmm. and F's and, and that. And um, my parents were ecstatic. I wasn't they didn't have to go in and talk to the principal <laughs> and things like that uh, in my <laughs> My junior year of uh, track, I missed the mat on pole vault and ended up mm. springing my pelvis. So that was another trauma that happened. Um, and basically, my senior year, the grades came easier. The migraines weren't as much. And so things were working really well. And I got into college and in Montana at the time. I don't know if it's changed or not, but you can go to college if you graduate from a Montana high school. And so I just enrolled, didn't have to take SATs or anything like that. Very cool. And uh, uh, they put me in all remedial courses, said I was reading at a third grade level. Wow. And uh, they put me in this course called How to Study. And I remember vividly the TA looks, looked at me in the eyes after doing one of these tests and he says, do you know that you can read one more than one word at a time? And I thought to myself, what is this witchcraft of which you speak? He's like, <laughs> how can, how could someone possibly read more than one word at a time? And that's when, see, I, even though my brain was starting to function better, I had no skills. Mm -hmm. I had no study skills. Wow. Whatsoever. So I had to relearn all of that stuff or learn them for the first time um, and then move forward. But things became much easier for me. It was during this time when I was a, a freshman in at college that I went back in to get my neck adjusted. And I asked Scott, I said, are chiropractors doctors? Mm -hmm. And because I had no idea um, mm -hmm. about this. And that's when he told me the story, uh, the chiropractic story and what it is and, and that. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is what I want to do. Um, it, it sounds amazing. Uh, what you can do for people. So changed the major, got into the pre-med, um, got into Palmer. And it was my freshman year, the, well, the first um, trimester there at Palmer that I was on the phone with Scott. And he said, have you heard of Blair? Mm -hmm. And I said, no. And he said, well, you need to get a hold of Dr. Muncie and he needs to come to the college. And it just so happened that later that month, Dr. Muncie was uh, giving a seminar at Palmer. So uh, a friend of mine and I, we sat in on that seminar and started to learn about asymmetries and um, all of upper cervical and all of this. And I'm still, you know, first try. So it's all basic yeah. stuff. We're yeah. not really getting into anything. Uh, but that's when I got uh, introduced. What, to, what's it like taking like, a seminar from Dr. Muncie himself? <laughs> well, you know, at that point it was, uh, 
I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, really was getting, you know, in undergrad, we had anatomy and now we're having anatomy again. And I'm getting to understand, totally excited about chiropractic at this time. And uh, what I can remember is it made sense. Mm-hmm. But God said that if I was going to come back, we were going to have our plans of me precepting that I needed to learn this. So I needed to learn this um, stuff. And I went back home after the first trimester. And it was in the February then of what would be 1993 that I got my first flare adjustment and had my last migraine. Wow. I haven't had a migraine since then. Wow. Yeah. So that's powerful, powerful stuff. And the fact that chiropractic was helping me, it was doing a lot, but it wasn't clearing everything out. And then it wasn't until I got that double AS adjustment. Double AS. Yeah. That uh, cleared it. And from there, you know, I was, uh, I was headstrong into wow. upper cervical. And as in Palmer, you know, you're learning everything. And Scott uh, told me that as I go through school, and I was telling this to all my students, is that now is the time to learn how to move any bone at any time, mm-hmm. because you're a chiropractor first, and then you can do Blair second. But if you don't know how, or you know, the process of it, then how can you become an expert at it? Mm-hmm. And so I was still learning all that stuff. But as I was going through and learning that, it just seemed to be that the upper cervical was the way to go. Blair was the way to go. And that's how I got a focus on that as my technique. And then, of course, when I graduated, went and worked for Scott for a little while. Um, after that, he was bringing another student in. So I went out and I found a job with Michael Lenars up in oh, Seattle. Nice. nice. And so I worked with Michael Lenars, Chris Moots was with me, uh, or excuse me, Eric Moots and Chris Wolf were uh, the two doctors that were with me up there and uh, spent 18 months with Dr. Lenars until I opened my own clinic in Sycamore, Illinois in wow. 1998. What made so, you pick Sycamore, Illinois? Uh, I married a local girl All right. back there and uh, we were looking at different places to go and that one was the best choice for us at the time. And so we went back there to be closer to her parents and and have our own clinic and everything worked out at that Very point. Nice. Very um, nice. And yeah. Tell me how, questions? so this is, this is fascinating because you have taught at, you taught at um, Davenport, Iowa, Palmer College Chiropractic for so many years. And I, your backstory is like, that would be the last thing you would probably want to do <laughs> as an undergrad. Um, yeah. How did, how did the teaching aspect come about? Well, um, we were getting our practice going in Sycamore and it was starting to roll. And so my wife comes to me and she says, uh, you want to start a family? And I said, yes. And she said, well, uh, we have, we're at a crossroads. We're, we're growing. We need to either uh, hire people and, and start getting uh, room for the caseloads that we have. Um, or what do you think about teaching? And she kept coming back with me. What do you think about teaching? What do you think about if we went there and I could raise the family and you could um, do that? And I thought to myself, there's no way I am not really? going to go teach. Palmer will never hire an upper cervical chiropractor to be in their clinics because that's the only thing that would make sense to me mm-hmm. um, to do. And so I had the perfect plan. 
And the plan was that I would apply. Uh And when they didn't hire me, that she would have to, um, you know, go with me on this journey of, of building the clinic and hiring people and, and doing what it needed to do. And obviously it worked out exactly how I planned uh, (laughs) with all that, but I made her promise. And when they offered me the job, I took it. And so we sold our practice and moved to Davenport and, uh, yeah, I just like God had a plan and we went, went with it and it worked out. So, and how long were you teaching there for? I was teaching there from 2003 till last year and 15 years. What's it for, for 15 years of teaching the Blair work? What is it? What has it taught you? Uh, well, I was thinking about that earlier today. It's like, what would I say to anybody if they were beginning in here? And the first thing is that, um, trust it. It, it is what it is. Uh, there's, it, it can almost be, you know, when you look at those x-rays and then mm-hmm. it's literally black and white, mm-hmm. it comes down to the x-ray and there's times where Scott and I were talking about this, Scott Matz, uh, just the other week was that if something's not going right, it's the analysis, uh, that you've misread it, that you got to go look back and see what you're missing because innate intelligence, it works. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get that result. And when you're having a hard time with it, go back, look at those x-rays, maybe re-x-ray, use the CBCT yeah. that, that we have access to now and find out what's getting missed. Um, repattern, you just have them come back in and run that pattern scan on a daily basis for you know, four or five, six visits, and then just see what is ha- happening, you know, without putting any kind of uh, thrust or anything into the spine, just see where that nervous system's going and it'll tell you what you're missing or, or uh, maybe it's just the fact that you got to come in at a different angle. So mm-hmm. take a side opposite rather than, than uh, pushing it, just pull it. Dr. Uh, Hubbard, um, at what point do you re x-ray um, when people, when the treatment plan is not going to your plan? Is it, do you have a certain amount of visits? Um, what, what leads you to re x-ray? Well, the first thing would be if I'm not breaking pattern. Okay. So if that is a situation that there's some, even some part of it that's not coming up. Um, so if that pattern's just not budging. Yeah. Yeah. Or half of it's changing, half it's not. They get to find out why. Mm-hmm. And it could take time. So you got as much time as the patient will give you at that point. Uh, but there's been times where the person's out of trauma. And that trauma changes your listings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's times where what did come up on the x-ray was uh, an ASR, but it's my hypothesis. I have nothing to back this up other than the fact that um, you could be going along and just the patient has had other traumas in their life that has caused instability on, on the other side of the uh, condyles. And you didn't see it on the first x-ray because it wasn't present. But then after you're taking care of one and the body's starting to shift and changing, then something else may come up. So if that pattern isn't clearing uh, or it gets set in, maybe it's, it changes to a different type of pattern. Maybe they're locking in. It, what we did was a C2 wasn't there before. Now it is because the body, that cervical spine has started to change and remold and the body can't take care of that subluxation and it's going to show up. 
Mm-hmm. So first thing, if I'm having issues is uh, with breaking that pattern is to re-x-ray. If a person ends up coming up with a symptom that just won't go away mm-hmm. or is uh, consistent and persistent. And I know we say we don't treat symptoms, but they are a component for the patient. Yeah. <laughs> do mean something to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that can tell you what's going on. Dr. Hubbard, let's talk about side opposite adjustments. Um, so I had an interesting conversation with Dr. Lenars and I didn't get to finish it with him, but um, he was teaching, uh, I believe, an anterior side opposite adjustment. And, and he said, when do we use this? And I think I said, oh, when the slope angle is above 40 or 45. And he said, that's usually not how I, not the only reason why I would do it. And then the bell rang and we had to go. Uh, we had to go to another station. Sure. When do you utilize the side opposite adjustments? Will you do it on the first adjustment? Um, if all the access points are, are there and intact, when do you decide to go side opposite or just use a regular contact? Yeah. The, what What's, I learned, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Dr. Muncie was that I had the opportunity to take, um, five or six seminars from Dr. Muncie, uh, learned quite a bit. from him oh thank goodness but it was 40 degrees was the point that i remember from his seminars uh, moving to the side opposite uh in the slope angle right Mm -hmm. so 40 degrees slope and then they would say a shallow convergence and then the question came up what is a shallow convergence what does that mean and then the number 19 came out and I think the number 19 on a shallow convergence was basically when you got to the point where you ended up having to take a uh, stereo protractile view uh, because at that convergence angle was going into the septum and, and you couldn't see it on a plain film as easy as, as what you would. But it's basically because you don't want to go in like with a PI and end up pushing that thing too far forward. Mm-hmm. Um, on it and so going into the side opposite will change your angle your vector angle so that you're uh, you won't be able to do that um, push the bone too far forward by getting right behind it so that was the first thing that came up and then there's always the, the if you have an occluded transverse process and i like to use the adp open mouth for that mm-hmm. to uh, dr blair said uh, if i remember correctly it was uh, 12 millimeters off the mastoid. Um, it was either 12 or eight. One of them had uh, 12. The other one had eight with uh, AO. Who was the AO guy? Atlas Orthogonal hmm. um, Guru. He uh, wrote a paper that mentioned it. And that's where I followed up with our study that we did and found out that 15% of the people will have an included mastoid or included transverse process but from the mastoid so then it comes down to can you even touch mm-hmm. the superior anterior transverse mm-hmm. uh, just because of anatomy and then there is a problem with a shoulder uh, and dr Forrest would always say if they have a boil mm-hmm. on their skin and i would sit in the back of my head, always say, who has a boil? (laughs) When would that ever come up? But he would always mention it. And then um, I was justing uh, the the president of the college at Palmer. I won't tell you which one, but uh, he came in and he had a boil on his skin and we had to do (laughs) it. And it was just 
very interesting. I had to smirk at that one and say, yep. So there's many factors. Uh, I just had a lady that uh, she was in a car wreck and we've been working for a while and she would clear on everything, but she couldn't hold mm-hmm. the adjustment. And so I said, well, let's just try this. And we had her turn over. We pulled it with a side opposite. And that's when she started holding. So it can be just the fact that the patient responds better mm-hmm. that way. And there's a couple of, of ways that you can test for that, that I've used just by talking to other doctors, um, neurologic checks. One easy one that uh, I will rely on is I have them stand on one leg and close their eyes, and then I'll touch the right atlas and then the left atlas and see which one they become uh, more stable with. And so that'll be the side that I put the thrust in on no if way. it's a question. So they stand on one leg. Does it matter which leg it is? It doesn't. Okay. I, what I try to do is I say, stand on one leg, stand on the other leg, and I find out which one they're more stable at. Okay. Um, and then I put them in a corner. So if they go backwards, they're not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I stand in front of them and then they close their eyes and I uh, will press on either the right side or the left side of their atlas and whichever one they don't really respond to, or you'll find that if that is a, an issue that you'll press on one side and they'll become more unstable, it'll be noticeable for it. And so that is one thing that that I can't remember where I picked up um, probably many, many different seminars and talking to people about that. But it seems to be that when there is a question, do I need to go to this side? Um, I'll use that. And, and it'll help. Just to clear that up. Uh, if they're more stable on one side, you put the thrust on that side. Yes. Okay. That's yeah. very interesting. I, I've, I've yet to hear that. That's learn something new every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, you go and you talk to these people that have been practicing and they tell you different things that, that oh, they yeah. know. And then you go into your practice and you're like, wow. Yeah. I never knew that. Does head tilt play a factor inside opposite at all? If they're coming in like this and they're an ASR, would you rather go ASL and pull it? Or does that, do you find that being uh, any like, like head tilt? Does that play a factor in the side opposites at all? Um, I don't know, you know, and I say that because I have, uh, had a couple of instances where someone was getting adjusted orthogonally mm-hmm. and they said that that was really working mm-hmm. and so they, they come in and, um, we're not getting the kind of results that they were used to. And I've contacted, you could pull out their old films, look at it, see the different, um, angles that were being adjusted orthogonally. and they have a current patient right now that I'm working with that was a patient in Florida and I obtained her orthogonal listings and positioned her body in such a way to match uh, the, the uh, back up a little bit. The orthogonal listings were from six years ago. Mm-hmm. So when she came in, I re-x-rayed and then took those and, she, uh, and to basically take out any of the rotation that she had on our x-rays according to how they would do it. Um, and then I adjusted uh, with the Blair listing and she cleared. And this was a lady that's riddled with uh, osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. And so we finally got her to unlock um, after it just, we weren't getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so just anecdotally, that's what I would say. If you have that going on, 
I can't tell you exactly, you know, did they, it must be done this way or that way. Mm -hmm. But I practice in the fact in such that the patient is lined up. So where their neck is level, the spine is level patient positioning is the way that we're taught um, all the way back in toggle. Um, and then the cock of the headpiece gives that little opening for us uh, to my understanding and uh, approach the adjustments that way. So I don't make it a practice to accommodate for body positioning um, on the adjustments. Mm-hmm. It's just that, uh, that every now and then you get a patient that you got to do a little bit of extra with mm-hmm. in order to figure out why it's not working the way it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I blame the patient for not reading the textbook and <laughs> making it easy for me. Um, right. Yeah. When you do have patients that come from other upper cervical techniques, uh, do you try to translate the other upper cervical technique into Blair or you do your own analysis first? Because, you know, some people say, oh, and in, in this technique, I get adjusted on the right and then you're adjusting me on the left. Um, how do you how do you deal uh, with um, transfer patients from other upper cervical techniques? Well, first thing I just mentioned that it's a different analysis mm-hmm. and that uh, to my understanding, the way I look at it is that the other orthogonals, that's a posture analysis and that they're using the contact point, segmental contact point to move that posture, you know, working with the Atlas or wherever else they're contacting on it. Uh, and we're with the Blair, we're segmental you know, the articular process. And we're trying to just get that unlockment. Um, the, when I've taken a post x-ray that the rotation that, that may have been there, the compensate, you know, compensating rotation, um, is going away. The cervical curves coming back, uh, without having to really even focus on the patient placement as far as accommodating any kind of posture mm-hmm. that's out there. And the way that, uh, I understand it. And the way it's been explained is that, you know, we're taking care of the subluxation. And when you take care of that subluxation, the body's going to start to work. Um, I, and that doesn't make any other analysis wrong because, mm-hmm. you know, they're following through with the adjustment that they give. Uh, and we do our analysis a certain way. And then we follow through with that adjustment and it works. So that's, um, I haven't taken a whole lot of time to try to compare just because of the difference in the analysis, it's like apples and oranges. Uh, but at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that we are looking at the same human body and anatomy is anatomy, physiology is physiology. And if it's working one way for one person, it should work that way for another person, you know, for the most part, that's broad brush statement, but very true. Um, yeah. And so, Dr. Hubbard, where did the uh, the research? Um, I know you 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 love to do research. You've published a couple papers uh, for the Blair Society. Um, where did that come in for you? And how do, how does research work? Um, while, while with the upper cervical work. Now that's a that is a very interesting question. Um, I got into research because as a new fledgling uh, wannabe professor at Palmer. It was basically told that if you want to keep your job, you're going to have to publish. Wow. And, and it wasn't one of those things that was written down, like you will not go forward unless mm-hmm. this happens. But there were rubrics and it was written on the wall mm-hmm. there that, that you needed to publish. And I had no idea 
how to do it. I remember walking through the halls and I was talking to uh, Dana Lawrence and uh, he, I mentioned something about that. And he asked me, how did I know? And I said, well, the green books tell us. And he basically really handed it to me at that point um, that in talking about citations and what was happening with green books. And, and now uh, I won't say he, well, he just said that he didn't accept that argument. Let's put it that way. And so that was something that I was not used to mm. that, you know, if BJ said it, you accepted it. Yeah. And that was my background yeah. for it. But being in this environment, I was quickly learning that that is not good enough. And then if I'm going to teach this stuff, you can't teach it and have somebody understand it. Like, why does that happen? Well, Blair said so. Mm. And, uh, for a while, since we didn't have any more information that was accepted, but but not at this point. So I uh, went back uh, with my tail between my legs to my office, and I was in the Rock Island uh, Outreach Clinic at the time that Palmer had, which is across the river. I don't know for those people that aren't familiar. Uh, there's the main campus, and then they had satellite clinics uh, around. And so I was in a satellite clinic. And I was just right across the desk from John Stites. And John Stites was a radiologist. He's one of the smartest people I've met. Uh, and he started talking to me about research and what I needed to do. And it just so happened that Palmer had gotten a grant that would teach uh, clinical research to chiropractors. And it, I wasn't quite tenured in, didn't finish my probation, but Palmer allowed me to sit in on a class. Um, if I was a, a full-fledged employee that uh, had finished my probation, then they would give me a grant to get this a master's mm -hmm. for it. So I just started taking some classes. And that first instructor was Dana Lawrence, uh, the person that I had had the uh, conversation <laughs> with there. But it was um, uh, ethics and uh, case writing. And so we ended up having conversations. And some of those conversations the other students in the class would look at us because we were yelling <laughs> and going back and forth. But it was really kind of an interesting experience because as we were yelling at each other and getting our points across, then we'd go to have lunch, you know, and uh, yeah. because it wasn't personal. And that's when yeah. I learned that research isn't personal. It's the sharing of ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, when I finally got into the research program and became a student uh, for my master's, I put him on my, on, he was a chair member um or on my committee mm -hmm. and then i had joel picar uh who is one of the leading uh researchers in chiropractic or was before he retired um uh, i had ed owens on the committee who is a great uh, biomechanics uh chiropractor who's not sure where he's at right now but uh, many many papers that he's published on that and then when he left to go to minnesota um, that's when I added Steve DeRay, who's an anatomist mm -hmm. and he helped me publish that paper about the mastoids and, and occlusion. Uh, so that was, I figured if, if this is my track on how I'm going to succeed at, at Palmer, then I need to know the research. And so we learned. And one of the things about that grant they had at the time is they were teaching chiropractors how to do research that was acceptable. And we started putting out papers that were talking about subluxation. Um, before, when I started, you would go to search terms 
on PubMed in that, and you couldn't find the chiropractic defined subluxation. And now it's there because no one was using that term before. So no one accepted it. And then once they started teaching chiropractors how to do this, and we started writing in our language, then all of a sudden those words start popping up because they're being used in publications. So that was pretty cool. Um, Palmer then got a couple of grants to work with the military and uh, started publishing those papers. And now it's come to the point, and again, my opinion, that what ended up happening was through the amount of research that was published, that chiropractic is now seen as safe and effective. And there's really no argument wow. about it. You know, so that's been good. Very my good. personal track was that if I was going to do research on chiropractic, I might as well test Blair. And so that's why we came out and were able to publish the papers on the reliability of the x-rays because we couldn't really get to any efficacy if we didn't have any reliability mm -hmm. for it. So we started with that. And then uh, learning that in order to do a controlled trial with certain aspects, certain symptoms that are involved with the clearing of a subluxation is so hard to do because you just cannot isolate one symptom so much because there's nothing that says that everybody with an ASR is going to have a headache and not everybody that has a headache has an ASR. So you're dealing with that kind of a thing to begin with. Um, and so it's, it's very uh, muddied in that mm -hmm. aspect. When I worked in the research clinic and uh, there was a big debate uh, at the time that uh, they were trying to, to isolate and sensitize or, um, sanitize the works to get to that one question. And then they realized it came up that said that you can't do that. If we're going to try to find out why chiropractors get the results they do, we have to be taking care of the patients just like they do outside, you know, off campus and in the private practices. Mm. And so that's where the research changed is that they started taking care of the patients, the same as the patients we'd be taking care of, um, in the, an outside clinic. So it first came up where the, someone else would do all the analysis, the chiropractor would come in, do the adjustment, and then somebody else would do the follow-up. Well, they found out that that's not, that's not how things are done. And they did, started mimicking what was done in practice and the results started changing as far as what I saw. Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. This is very interesting on how things come about. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm really happy with what we're finding right now and the increase in technology and some of the stuff that we were saying, no, there's just no proof of. Um, and the reason was, was because we just didn't know what questions that we were looking for. Or everybody had a theory. And then it turns out that we really couldn't answer that theory with what we were doing. Um, so they figured, well, it must not be true. Well, it, it wasn't that it wasn't true. It was just that we, did, we didn't know how to find it. Mm -hmm. And now the technology has gotten to the point where we're seeing this stuff. Yeah, you know, with the uh, advances on the concussion research and uh, with what's actually happening with the way that the nerves are changing, the CSF flow and uh, the artery flow and all that that's happening at that brainstem level. It's just it's amazing that our forefathers are being shown that they were correct when they amazing said this. with yeah. the technology that they had, like un unbelievable. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, how did they know? Yeah, how did they know this stuff, but they yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. Um, the brilliance that they had. Dr. Hubbard, what do you think is going on with um, post 
x-rays and blare i know we don't do it a lot but you know sometimes you people are holding and you see the subluxation reduce sometimes it's even sometimes it's still there what yeah. do you think is actually going on with the adjustment and oh sure uh, I thought we were getting into why we take x-rays or should we? <laughs> uh, but really what uh, I go back to, to having a conversation with Dr. Lenars. Okay. Right? Michael was uh, in the process of putting together a paper and I apologize, but I don't know if it went any further. I think he uh, presented it at a, um, is it called raps that mm, sure. Herman has? It's a Sherman's uh, some research symposium. And um, he had the results of that where they would do the, the thermography and do the adjustments and then go back um, uh, however many weeks later and then redo the x-rays and redo the, then look at the thermography patterns. And, and it came out to be something like there were a better reduction of pattern in the patients that had a reduction of the uh, misalignment seen on x-ray. Mm. Uh, but when he looked at where patients had a complete uh, balancing out or leveling uh, a negative listing that showed up on the x-ray, they didn't do as well on the pattern. And so the question came up is why is this? And what do you mean at, by negative listing? Uh, there wasn't anything, right? Okay. So it's neutral. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, it's in alignment, mm -hmm. overlap or underlap. Mm -hmm. And uh, so his theory was at that point, and if I'm stating it correctly, was that our, uh, um, our focus on the adjustment is not to reset the joint. Mm -hmm. Focus is to unlock it mm -hmm. so that intelligence can then put it where it needs to be. And the whole point of that is that by the time a person gets into your clinic, you don't know how many times that their body has changed posture and accommodated and, and tried to shift away. And let's say that that happened a uh, half dozen times and they have a reverse curve mm -hmm. and there's arthritis that's built up and arthritis doesn't come in the same on the right joint as it does on the left. Um, so that's going to change the mechanics of it. So now you could get everything cleared up, but the joint's not working the way it was designed to work. And so that's going to be an issue once that these muscles get turned on and start working the way that they should. So then the body has to adapt to that kind of stuff. Mm. So maybe the body doesn't want it perfectly lined up. Gotcha. And if it is perfectly lined up, maybe that would put more pressure on those nerves than if it is sitting at that point in time where the bone is. So what we do know from the x-rays is that that tells us the direction the correction needs to go because we want to get it towards neutral. But as you know, the, the x-ray itself or the radiograph, um, it does not tell us that it has to be adjusted. Mm -hmm. That just tells us if we're going to adjust the segment, which way do we need to push it? Very good. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Um, and uh, Dr. Hubbard, what was the process like of, you wrote the, the most recent edition of the Blair Manual? Yeah. What was going yeah. on before that? Was there a manual? Were you just oh, gathering papers from everywhere? Like, how did that even work? So what happened was that I got, uh, was started teaching um, the Blair work at the electives in 2000. 
and I was not hired on campus yet. I, I joined Palmer as a faculty member in uh, 2003, October 5th, 2003 was my hire date. And so we were working with John Straczewski and working to get the Blair into the college. And we were going through the backstory on that. We were going, getting a lot of pushback from other faculty members about another upper cervical. Are you kidding me? This isn't needed or anything. So it went through committee. And one of the things they said was, you don't even have a manual. And so we handed them the notes that were given from the Blair Society that were Dr. Muncy's notes. And they were in outline form with schematics that were put together by Fred Harkins. And mm -hmm. uh, they did an amazing job on them of explaining and, and with what they had, but it wasn't in book form. And there was a lot of holes in it. And the reason for those holes was it part of it was different notes that, that um, Fred had put together and Dr. Muncy had put together and had put together into this pamphlet but it was really designed to make sure that you had to attend the seminar to write down the stuff that was being told um, to either learn it more or to make sure that the information that you were getting was correct mm -hmm. um, and all of that. And you weren't just buying a manual and going out and trying to do the work for it. So there was reasons that they were doing it that way. Plus at that point, PowerPoint really wasn't a thing mm -hmm. uh, for it. I mean, it was in its infancy at this point. Uh, when we started doing our seminars, I was able to get a copy of all the slides that you know, from you know slide projector that Dr. Muncy had, and we were basically using those and uh, in, in the slide projector until we could get the powerpoints put together. And there wasn't a book, and in order to get this book, it was basically we said, okay, at the it, I was on the Blair board at the time. And we were saying, okay, we need a book. Let's do it. And that's basically where it stopped. So finally, it was like, okay, if we're going to need a book, somebody's got to put this together. And so that's when I put the book together. And it wasn't anything that I said, I'm going to go do this. It was like, in order to get on campus mm -hmm. and be able to teach this to the students and have it sanctioned by a, uh, a college, that we had to have a book. And so then it came together that way. And over the years, I tried adding to it and give more information uh, to, but it's a textbook and it, that's how it came to be. And we tried to do our best to keep everything as pure as possible to it. Um, there were a couple of uh, instances that I found out that, that I may have added something that shouldn't have been. So we took that out. And, <laughs> and so the last, uh, the, 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 I think it's edition seven or six. Uh, they're at least the last one that's out there that people have right now. Um, that's been gone over many, many, many times by the board and by other people who knew Dr. Blair mm -hmm. and uh, accept it as that's what it is. And now Dr. Hannah has taken that and he's putting it into his textbook. Yeah. Um, and, and so hopefully we'll have um, that coming out soon. I know that he's put a lot of effort into it and, it's, I can't commend him enough for the job that he's done. It's just yeah, amazing, it's amazing. Uh, amazing of the effort that what he's put into the technique and blood, soap and tears for that. So yeah. uh, I just give a shout out to Jeff and say, thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Jeff. You do amazing work for the Blair society. We're excited for that textbook to come out. I know it's, it's coming together real fast. So um, Dr. Hubbard, um, 
what would you say by because uh, you've taught so many students at this point? What does what does some what does a doctor need to be successful after they graduate? Um, after they graduate and they're they're going into practice, what do you think are some of the tools or things they need to be to be a successful Blair doctor? Well, you gotta have a tilting bucky. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> you gotta have a tilting bucky. Yeah, um, you gotta take those X-rays. And there's times where I'll refer to somebody and they'll say, yeah, we do Blair and mm. come up and they don't even have a toggle table um, for it. But, you know, the basics of that is that it makes sure that you have a way to get your images correctly mm -hmm. so, because it, it comes down to, can you see the misalignment? Right. And do you have the right, the correct listing mm -hmm. for them? And then that toggle table. Um, and there's a bunch of them out there that work. Uh, for you. And I, when I started out, I had a BJ side posture table that I think was a Zenith, but I'm not sure. And uh, that worked great. I was able to, to use it and modify whatever needed to be modified. So it worked, but it was basically built the same way as the uh, Nicholas Lloyd's that are out right now. Uh, my backup table was a rock. Mm -hmm. So one of those tiny little rock tables, and I use that as my home adjustment adjusting table. So, um, those work great. Uh, but the main thing with those toggle tables is for somebody who's out there looking is that that headpiece has to be a firm mm. yeah, that, uh, there's toggle tables that are being made right now that have kind of a, a soft, squishy headpiece. And that when you're adjusting on those, not only do you have to account for the skin, um, deformation that's happening, the softness of, of getting into that transverse process, but then you also have to count for the softness of the table mm -hmm. and that changes the thrust mm -hmm. um, for it. So I would say, be very careful and making sure you have a firm headpiece uh, that'll drop on you when you want it to. Um, so you're not really having to accommodate for any kind of a, a cushion on that mm -hmm. headpiece. The tilting bucky is important. Um, with that, the thermography is is a big key because the leg checks uh, can throw you and the leg checks are to confirm what we're finding on the thermography and mm -hmm. the radiographs and that. But um, uh, leg checks are a great tool when used correctly and you can go a long way with them. Yeah. But uh, So, yeah, the, the thermography, some way to, to do that, it, it, even the analograph, the old analograph, dual, dual probes, they can work in a pinch. You know, if you're yeah. trying to keep those expenses low, those were used for a long time. And when I was with Lennars, that's all we use. Yeah. Uh, when I was back there and uh, I left there in 98. So um, the tilting bucky, the toggle table, uh, thermography. Um, since yeah. we're talking about the toggle table, um, I just got a, a new Lloyd side posture and they have five drop settings on them now. Yeah. Um, I understand why you would want to do a less drop um, to be more gentle. If somebody's like severely concussed, you don't want to be slamming on them. What, at, why would I use the drop five? Um, when I was at Palmer, I set them all at five. Really? Yeah. And the reason for that was because I was working with people that didn't have the background and experience at controlling their depth. Okay. And so for people that are, that are having a, a hard time getting consistent with their depth, it's more uh, forgiving. It's forgiving. It's going to be a little more shock to the patient. 
um, for it. But uh, a lot of the shocks the patient has come with how much tension you have on the table. And so you control that as well. Um, I set the table myself at the three, at the middle one. And if it's a, a child, then I try to go to where it's, it's less. So I'll put it at the, at the lowest one, mm-hmm. but um, it's really the fact that you don't want to bottom out. Mm-hmm. So with your adjusting style and how you do it, um, then you can modify that drop on the headpiece according to the doctor. Uh, very that's cool. coming. So that's very helpful. Yeah. Very, very helpful. Okay. And um, Dr. Hubbard, what advice would you give yourself uh, if you had a conversation with yourself to your first year in practice, you're, you're 26 years in and you're going back in time and talking to yourself uh, one year in what, <laughs> what do you think you would tell yourself? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Um, yeah. Trust, trust the technique. Mm-hmm. When I first got out and it, it you can edit this out if you want, but, uh, I thought I really knew what chiropractic was and, and how good I was and all of that. But I always had in the beginning of my career, Dr. Matz, he was there. If I had questions, yeah. or if there was an issue, I could have him come in and he'd clean up what, yeah. what I could. Yeah. And then I moved to Dr. Lenar's and, you know, I was still top of my game. but whenever there was a problem, there was always somebody else there. And when I opened my own clinic, there wasn't anybody else there. Mm -hmm. And that was scary. Um, so much so that the anxiety was building Mm -hmm. in me. And I was the kind of person who thought with all of the, the stories about the miracle works that happened at the hallow halls of Palmer college, that why don't I get that with each and every patient? Mm-hmm. And so you can go and you can see a hundred patients um, that are doing great. And that 101st, that's not really clearing out. That's the one I was focusing on. And it was consuming me so much that I was afraid to go into my practice and, um, you know, shutting myself down uh, because I couldn't understand this. And it took a friend of mine who I graduated with, he gave me a call and said, you need to come down to South Carolina with me. And we went down, we talked to a management group and I'll just say it was AMC, Affordable Management Consultants. And I think it's uh, Ed, no, it wasn't Ed, it was, uh, and Owens uh, was their last name. And he put his arm around me and said, you know what your problem is? And I thought to myself, because of where my headspace was, I was just basically, well, you tell me what my problem is. You know, you must know what my problem. And he says, you don't like people. And I I was like, what do you mean I don't like people? That's the stupidest thing. Uh, But he kind of explained that my whole posture was I was trying to get away um, from this. And I didn't want to, to have that kind of burden put on me and made me realize that I... I, I make this joke to my students right now. Uh, and so it's, it's uh, I'm not trying to be cocky or anything. It's just a joke where it says, I may have hands of gold, but I don't have the hands of God. Mm-hmm. And there are certain things that I can do. And what I think is, is ironic is that I didn't make any of this up. I'm just doing what Muncie told me to do, what Forrest told me to do, what Matt's told me to do. Um, these are my mentors that have told me, 
this follow this way. Dr. Blair put it down for us. I didn't know Dr. Blair, so that's why I didn't say him right away. But, uh, you know, he, he wrote it out. And then uh, if you follow it, that innate is going to take over. And innate is our, is our partner on mm-hmm. this. Our job is to unlock it so that it can work. Um, but we can't think as chiropractors that we have the almighty power. And sometimes it takes time. Sometimes there's a limitation to matter, like BJ mm. said. Um, but what we can do for our patients is we can be there and we can do what we do the way that we were told to do it. And those miracle cases are going to happen and mm. people are going to get better. And so that's what we need to focus on. And if we're missing something, if we're having a hard time, yeah, try to figure it out. But there are times I'm in an office right now with six other doctors and there's times where I'll be working with somebody and I'll say, you know what, go see one of the other doctors right here. They can, at least for a second opinion, you can either come back to me or you can stay with them, but let's figure out if they can come up with, with something. And sometimes they'll come back and say, try this one. It's not your Alice. You got to go to C2 or uh, vice versa. It's, you, you take it from a side opposite and they'll bring up something that, you know, I know, yeah. I know what to do, but it wasn't hitting me at that point. Or they'll do the exact same adjustment I was doing with a little different take on it and, and their approach of, of how their body mechanics apply that and they get better. And so it's just, okay. Yeah. It's the way things go. And our job is to take care of our patients and do the mm-hmm. best we can. Mm-hmm. And I would say, do not put that pressure on yourself that you have to get a miracle result with every patient. Mm-hmm. Just follow the scripts, you know, mm-hmm. do the procedures, follow the technique. And when it does get tough, go back to the science. What did you miss that you were supposed to do that you didn't to have you establish the right pattern? Mm-hmm. Um, are your x-rays finding that 90 degree angle on the condom? Um, can you see it? Is, is there pro- nowadays we have digital x-ray, but, but did you have proper exposure on it? Were, did, were they manipulated in their patient, uh, in their posture when you took that picture? So was it a neutral or was it not, um, stuff like that would come up. And if you're having problems, go back to the science, do what you're supposed to do before you start to improvise. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing that you say that, like, it's that you get like 10 miracle cases and you're only focused on that one person that week that is just not budging and getting better. And, uh, I think I could definitely identify with that. I know a lot of other people, um, it can be very discouraging when you're, um, when you're just focusing on that one person, you're not getting better when you're helping a lot, a bunch of other people. Yeah. It happens to all of us. Yeah. 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 We happen to be human. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't become a chiropractor because you hate people mm-hmm. right so you're trying to help you're doing the best you can yep. they're coming to you asking for help and we feel obligated mm-hmm. for that so and we see all this stuff that works for everybody else why isn't it working for this person mm-hmm. well yeah it can it can get to you if you let it dr Hubbard, what's your mindset um going into an adjustment um is it um are you like you know, uh, intention, I feel like goes a long way. Um, what is your mindset? Do you get in the zone for every single adjustment? I, I know it depends on the day, but ideally, uh, stepping up to the batter's box, what's, uh, what's your, what's your mental state like? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Mons, he said the adjustment needs to be an event. Mm. And so the, no matter what's going on that day, 
hey, you're about to put a force into a patient's body and you need to be focused on that. Plus the fact, if you just, you have them lay down on the table, you come up, you give a thrust, you get them back on the leg check table and, and it's just going, then it's lately, it's kind of funny. The last couple of weeks, um, almost every new patient that we've had, they'll come back for the visit after their first adjustment. And they'll be saying, I didn't think you did anything, mm -hmm. but man, things are changing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just, I got to give a little smirk with that. It's like, yep, I, I understand. But that's, you know, that's the, the point of what we're trying to do is give that correction without having the body have to flinch against it mm -hmm. and uh, then allow it to take place. Um, so trying to make sure that they understand something did happen and what you can do is control that environment by having them laid on the, the table correctly and get them positioned so that spine is in neutral so that when you pop the table up, you got a little bit of a gap happening to give you room to, to get in to get that contact point. And then I take a step back, take a breath and think mm -hmm. about the adjustment I'm going to give. And a lot of times, if there's something that's not just right by me mentally going through, what is this adjustment? How am I going to set up? How is it going to move? You can catch if like you say, okay, go ahead and lie down. The patient automatically goes to one side of the table. They lay down and there, and you're about to give an ASL and they got their left or right side up. And you're going, going through that and say, wait a minute, this isn't working. You know, rather than if you're in a hurry, you just step up and give it. Well, now you, there's an issue that just yeah. took place. So um, mentally preparing myself to give the adjustment, going through it, uh, each and every adjustment um, to, to make sure that I'm ready to be able to get that follow through and, and try to stay on contact as long as I can without bottoming out. And, you know, all of that kind of stuff that goes into play um, and then step up, give the adjustment, let the patient uh, take a few breaths mm -hmm. there before you get them up. It's not just popping up off the table again. Um, all of that stuff that just is, makes it so that the adjustment is an event mm -hmm. for it. It allows, you, it allows me to just step back and take a breath. Yeah. Um, as well as when they sit up, we give them a chance to, to, uh, get rid of any of that dizziness that's coming about from the reset mm -hmm. of, that, of that atlas. Um, then I have them lean forward slightly and put weight on both feet and then come up symmetrically with the muscles in their spine. And even that can help reset the rest of the posture so that when they lay back on the table, the legs are automatically balanced out and, and you move forward that way. Mm. But, uh, and, and what, what about to start the shift? Anything you do, any rituals to get you, get you ready for the patients you're about to see? <laughs> In the beginning, I highly recommend people do this. Um, I don't do it so much anymore, but Michael Lenars had us show up early and we had to practice with each other each and every adjustment that we were going to give that day. Wow. And the thing is, you don't know which ones you're going to give. <laughs> there was a time there where I saw a hundred people, a um, hundred people that day with two new patients uh, in, in, uh, health first chiropractic up there for Michael. And you don't know what you're going to do. So, um, we had to practice each and every one and it starts out with speed. And so you got to get your speed down. You got to make sure that, that you got a good snap on the recoil and that when you're doing the torque adjustments without the recoil, that you're not coming off too soon. 
um, that, that you're controlling that event. And that happened every day wow. that we were going in. Um, so until you can, um, you know, give a hundred adjustments with the exact same thrust that that's where I would start. And then, uh, I try to go through the patient list and find out where, where are my second days? When am I going to give the, re- the reports, make sure that the, all the x-rays are taken care of the night before that they're analyzed, they're set to go to just try to uh, allow me to focus on the patients that are in front of me without trying to um, play catch up. Cause as you know, if you leave something to go, well, I'll look at these x-rays tomorrow. Well, you're going to be behind yeah. when it comes time to look at those. Whereas if you look at them the day ahead and get all your files prepped and all that, then you'll be ahead of schedule when that patient walks in. Mm-hmm. It's just the way things work. So, um, at, at now at this point in my career, it's basically making sure that I'm ready for the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I walk in that, um, I'm not walking in. At right when the patients are going to start to get there, I give myself a chance to go through my room, make sure that everything's uh, the way it should be, uh, that the files are ready to go. And now it's just opening them up on the computers. But if I got a second day, if I got a report, if I got an, an exam that needs to be done that I mentally checked off and prepared for those um, to happen. And uh, but the, the biggest thing I would say that helped me the most was when Michael made us practice those adjustments Mm. and and he didn't let up on that. I mean, if you didn't practice, you weren't seeing patients that day. And that's the way it was. So thank God he did that. Yeah. Um, Dr. Hubbard, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and all the work and effort you put into the Blair society. Uh, I know I'm not the only one that says this, but, uh, we can't thank you enough for everything that you have done for the society. And, um, thank you for giving your time today. And we would love to have you back on the show anytime. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.